Living in the last days, believers know that God's judgment is near. Lest we think that his judgment will only be upon the unregenerate, Peter said that it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, 1 Peter 4.17. In other words, God's judgment begins with the church. In 1 Peter 5.1-5, Peter addressed the elders of the church in light of this coming judgment. And now in 1 Peter 5.5-9, he addresses the people of the church with five exhortations so that you too can be prepared for God's judgment. We'll begin with verse 5 with exhortation 1, submit to your elders. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. The first exhortation to the church is to submit to your elders. Peter uses the phrase younger men, naos, in light of his previous statements on the elders or spiritually mature ones. Accordingly, Peter sees two groups of people within the local church, those who are elders and the rest of the congregation who are not yet qualified to be elders in the church. However, his viewpoint presupposes the idea that those who are younger will mature and become elders, ruling elders, teaching elders, or traveling elders. See, it was the early church's practice that the elders would come alongside the younger and disciple them to maturity and eldership, Titus 2, 4-8 so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. It is incumbent upon the elders, the spiritually mature, to disciple the spiritually immature. However, churches have adopted the world's philosophy of age and gender-based isolation. And while there are times when it is necessary to have age and gender-appropriate instruction, the church has gone out of its way to isolate every group within the church. This lack of intergenerational instruction and fellowship has undermined the elder's ability to disciple the younger. Now to the younger, Peter exhorts them, likewise be subject to your elders. The term likewise means in the same manner. Peter previously used this term in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 3, 7 to denote the mutual submission of husbands and wives. Here he uses the term likewise to demonstrate that the younger are to submit to their elders in the same manner that the elders submit to their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. The verb be subject, hupotasso, is the same term Peter used to describe one's responsibility to human government and employment and husbands and wives to one another. It means to place oneself under another in an orderly fashion. The passive voice of this verb indicates that individuals place themselves voluntarily under those in authority. Submission means not resisting or complaining about the elders' plans. And such willing or voluntary submission to the elders does not mean that believers are to obey blindly. If an elder requires something that violates the precepts or principles of God's word, then they should not be followed. 
The normative response, though, is that believers will obey and submit to their elders. And the underlying reason for such is that the elders oversee the spiritual growth and safety of believers and that they will give an account of how they have performed as well as how those under their care have performed. Therefore, it is of utmost importance that believers not be a stain upon their elders' record. Friends, you need to examine your behavior and consider whether you are a blight or a blessing upon the elders. Judgment is coming, and every believer will give an account. Now, verse 5 and 6 brings us to our second exhortation. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. The second exhortation to the church is to humble yourselves to one another. Peter has addressed this issue of humility previously in his letter back in chapter 3 and verse 8. Because in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century AD, humility was contemptuous. Anyone practicing humility would be disparaged as shameful and unable to defend oneself. Furthermore, an entire community practicing humility was viewed as countercultural. And because of this attached negative connotation, Peter again exhorts believers to practice humility towards one another. Now the phrase, all of you, shifts the exhortations now to both elders and the younger. The verb clothe means to tie an apron around oneself. It refers to a long white apron commonly worn by servants to distinguish themselves from free men. No doubt, Peter remembers how Jesus clothed himself with a similar apron when he washed the disciples' feet. John 13, 4 and 5. Jesus got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel or an apron, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel or the apron with which he was girded. Christ is the epitome of humility. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. By examining Christ's display of humility in washing the disciples' feet, it is evident that humility demonstrates itself in works of service towards others. Now that term clothe is an imperative verb demanding that believers, you and I, as servants of God, adorn ourselves with humility or lowliness of mind. By putting on humility, we should be considering others better than ourselves. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. See, adorning ourselves with humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking less about ourselves. It is thinking about others before ourselves. My question is this. How many church issues 
could be resolved if we adorned ourselves with humility. As Thomas Schreiner states, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. John Eliot states, humility was amongst Christians a renunciation of ambition and domination over others, submission to God's will, and trust in God's generous favor and support, all of which contribute to the social harmony and cohesion of the community. See, my friends, if there is a lack of social harmony, if there is a lack of unity within the church community, it is because there is a lack of humility. Now, the antithesis of humility is pride. And to that end, Peter quotes Proverbs 3, 34. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Literally, in Hebrew, the phrase can be rendered as, quote, God mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble, end quote. This verse is quoted by Peter and James in James 4.6, demonstrating its wide usage amongst the early church. Now when it says opposed, the verb opposed is a military term, meaning to arrange an army in battle order. And it conveys the sense that God is at war with pride. Indeed, a proud look, a haughty look, is one of the seven things God hates. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty, that is proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, interestingly, upon learning that she would be the vessel by which God would be incarnated, Mary sang, quote, He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Luke 1, 51-52. Clearly, Mary understood God's opposing of the proud and strengthening of the humble. You see, to the humble, God gives grace. And this grace, or charis, is not only the loving favor that God bestows on sinners in saving them, but it is His enabling strength for daily living. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and by His grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, since God wars against the proud and gives strength for daily living to the humble, you and I must humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Whereas in verse 5 the exhortation was to be humble to one another, here in verse 6 the exhortation includes humbling ourselves before God. As James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Therefore, we must love both God and others, and demonstrate that love with humility towards God and others. Now, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God 
means that we are submitting ourselves to God and placing all of our confidence in God alone. The mighty hand of God is an Old Testament anthropomorphic metaphor to describe God's defense and deliverance of His people. Deuteronomy 3.24 O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Deuteronomy 9.26 I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 26.8 And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror, and with signs and wonders. See, it was God's act of deliverance in the Exodus that became the model for His promise of future help. Isaiah 25, 9-10 And it will be in this day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Moab will be trodden down in His place, as straw is trodden down in the waters of a manure pile. Jeremiah 6.12 Their house shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. And this image of God's mighty hand continued into the New Testament. John the Baptist was viewed upon, as one upon whom the hand of the Lord rested. Luke 1.66 All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What? Then will this child turn out to be, for the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And the early church understood God's hand to be the means of deliverance and discipline. Acts 11.21 And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. See, the context of Acts 11 is that of persecution. The church is being scattered they are suffering and slandered, and yet they saw it as discipline and deliverance from the mighty hand of God. You see, believer, we need to accept that trials and troubles and tribulations will come into our lives. That they are a part of God's plan for disciplining and delivering us. And instead of railing and raging against the circumstances or their causes, we need to accept these things as God's plan for us and use them as a means of witnessing to the lost. As Paul Actemeyer states, quote, Christians are to acknowledge that such status conforms to God's will and to accept it for that reason, since it is the path God wishes Christians to take, a path that will lead finally to God's exaltation of them. You see, believer, we must submit to the sufferings and trials which God's hand brings into our life. It's all too natural to want to respond with retaliation to persecution or suffering. However, when we respond to suffering and trials with good and not evil, we will be exalted. That same mighty hand that destroys the proud will exalt the humble at the proper time. And that word exalt means to raise someone to a position of dignity or honor. You see, Christ promised that those who humble themselves will be exalted to a position of honor. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Now, the proper time here refers to what Peter has previously called the last time and the, in 1 Peter 1, 5, and the day of visitation in 1 Peter 2, 12, referring to the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs in conjunction with the church's rapture. See, at the judgment seat of Christ, our actions are going to be judged as to whether they are worthy or worthless. Railings and ragings against trials and trouble and tribulations are going to end in the worthless pile which will be destroyed. See, friend, there is no reward for such behavior. Let's look at verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The third exhortation to the church is to cast all your anxiety on God. Now, Peter's exhortation is a quote from Psalm 55 too. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. As well, Peter recalls the very words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be worried about your life. Do not worry about tomorrow. Matthew 6, 25 and 34. Now, anxiety refers to the cares or worries of life's problems that disrupt our personality and mind. It conveys the idea of being pulled in different directions. And for Peter's initial readers, anxiety resulted from professing Christ in a polytheistic society that was hostile to Christ. Professing Christ in the Greco-Roman world often resulted in the loss of status and standing, family, friends, employment, and even life. These believers had real reasons to be anxious. And already believers today are facing such realities in many parts of the world. And the growing hostility against Christianity here in the West means it will not be long before Christians in Europe and the United States experience the same. Are you ready? Now this verb casting means to place responsibility on another. Hence it conveys the idea of believers, you and me, mentally placing our responsibility of our cares on God. To put it another way, Make God responsible for all of your worries. Casting is a circumstantial participle. It describes how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves by casting our worries on God. Are you doing that, believer? Now, the connection between the verb humble yourself in verse 6 and the participle casting in verse 7 demonstrates that worrying is a form of pride. This anxiety or worry is a type of pride because it causes believers to believe that they must solve their difficulties at lo alone. In doing so, we become our own God. By making God responsible for our worries, we convey our trust in God's mighty hand to defend and deliver us. As Gopal finally states, Quote, affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs one from God. Worry, anxiety for oneself, and striving to secure one's own life, which are marked by fear, is lifted from those who are called to faith. Now again, it's important to remember that Peter writes this exhortation to believers who are scattered and suffering. As such, they are no doubt struggling with anxiety. And note that Peter does not condemn them for struggling with anxiety. And neither should we. We should not be condemning fellow believers who struggle with anxiety or worry. 
Instead, Peter comes alongside of them and tells them what to do with that anxiety, give it over all to God. And the manner in which a believer gives their anxiety to God is through prayer and petition. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, exhorting believers to give their worries to God demonstrates that God is neither indifferent nor cruel. We can give our worries to God because He cares. The term cares, melee, indicates that we are relevant and important to God. It underscores the truth that God is more concerned about our needs than we are. You see, Christ as a suffering servant carried our sins on the cross. And now as our high priest, he carries our anxieties and our worries before the throne of grace. You know, it's noteworthy that all of the purported deities of the various world religions, it is only the Judeo-Christian God who cares for his people. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And Paul quotes that very verse in Hebrews 13.5. As Francis Baer states, quote, The conception of God as concerned with the afflictions of man is the peculiar treasure of Judaic and Christian faith. Greek philosophy at its highest could formulate a doctrine of his perfect goodness, but could not even imagine in him an active concern for mankind. See, friend, whatever is bothering you, whatever is causing you to be worried or to be anxious, does not need to rest on your shoulders alone. Give it to God through prayer and let him carry the burden. Let's go to our fourth exhortation, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The fourth exhortation to the church is to be sober and alert. Twice in his epistle, Peter has charged believers to be of sober spirit, Nepho. Keep sober in spirit, so as to not conform to the former lust, 1 Peter 1.13. And keep sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer, 1 Peter 4, 7. The command to be of sober spirit calls upon us to control our thoughts and not think irrationally. Interestingly, anxiety will cause you to think irrationally. The verb be on the alert, Gregorio, means to be watchful and vigilant. The Greek term, Gregorio, is often used in Scripture with eschatological texts dealing with the end times. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert. Gregorio, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert, Gregorio, and sober. This command calls upon you and me to be ready to respond to outside influences. As John Eliot states, quote, divine protection does not eliminate the need for constant vigilance. Just because we've given our concerns and our worries over to God doesn't mean we can be lazy and slack. By using these two commands together, be sober and be alert, Peter wants us to focus on both the internal and external influences which buffet us. See, internally, we need to have our minds saturated with Scripture and submitted to the Holy Spirit 
to not give in to the desires of the flesh. As well, we need to vigilantly watch for any external attacks which would draw our attention away from the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit and thus cause us to cave to fleshly desires. Specifically, Peter states that these external attacks come from none other than your adversary, the devil. The use of your is personal. Peter knew the adversary and his tactics personally. Early in, earlier in Peter's ministry, Satan tried to destroy his faith. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When Peter failed to be sober and alert, Satan devoured him. And Peter denied Jesus. Christ's words in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, however, bring comfort to those who fall prey to Satan's wiles. One, it tells us that he is praying that our faith will not fail. And two, it tells us that failure is not the end. There is restoration. The phrase, when you have turned again, is the act of repentance. Once Peter repented, he was restored to the ministry and ministered to or strengthened his Christian brothers and sisters. Now the term adversary depicts Satan as an antagonistic accusing opponent in a lawsuit. Devil, diabolos, characterizes Satan as one who is a slanderer or accuser. Two Old Testament situations inform Peter's view of Satan. In Job, Satan appeared before God and a accused Job of only being faithful because of God's blessing. Job 1, 9-11 Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. On another occasion, Satan stood before God and accused Joshua the high priest. Zechariah 3, 1 then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And presently, Satan is still accusing and slandering us before God. Revelation 12.10 That he's there in heaven, he's accusing us before our God day and night. Next, Peter portrays Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A roaring lion highlights Satan as a hungry beast intent on capturing its prey. Peter draws this simile again from the Old Testament. David described his enemies as a ravening and roaring lion in Psalm 22.13. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 22.25, pictured the false prophets of Israel as a roaring lion tearing the prey. The simile of portraying Satan as a roaring lion highlights that he is the enemy of believers and speaks lies like a false prophet. Furthermore, roaring typifies persecution, which Satan uses to try to intimidate us. And seeking, a present tense verb that demonstrates that Satan's constantly and ongoingly searching for his next victim. Devour means to drink down and conveys the idea of total consumption. Hence, Satan is intent on not merely slandering and accusing us, but of totally and ultimately destroying us. Again, Thomas Schreiner states, quote, Conversely, the devil's aim is not to comfort, but to terrify believers. He does not want to deliver them from fear, but to devour their faith. 
See, my friend, Satan will not rest until he either annihilates you or assimilates you back into his kingdom. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to saturate our minds with Scripture, submit to the Holy Spirit, and vigilantly watch for the enemy. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now finally, let's go to verse 9. But resist him, that's the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The fifth and final exhortation to the church is to resist the devil. This admonition is also quoted by James in 4.7 of James. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist, anthistome, refers to opposing or standing against an enemy. Now this term is used elsewhere in scripture describing Ilimus' opposition to the gospel in Acts 13.8. But Ilimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. It's used of Paul's opposition to Peter's bigotry in Galatians 2.11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And it's used of Alexander the coppersmith's opposition to Paul in 2 Timothy 4.14-15, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Examining these usages of the term displays that resistance is not passive, but active. We must actively oppose Satan. And how do we oppose Satan? By being firm in the faith. The term firm, stereos, means to be marked by determination or to stand firm like a rock as seen in its usage in the Septuagint version of Isaiah 50, verse 7, I have set my face like a flint or a rock. Thus the term refers to displaying rock-like resolution. Now the translators supplied the term your in the phrase in your faith. The phrase in Greek, however, te piste, translates as in the faith. Here the definite article te, the, is in the attributive position giving definiteness to the noun in question. Instead of referring to saving faith, Peter refers to the faith, also known as the body of biblical doctrine called orthodoxy. And those doctrines deemed orthodox or essential include the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, God is the creator of all things, the triunity of the Godhead, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ for sin, the blood atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the visible return of Christ. Now the armor of God includes taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Ephesians 6.16 Interestingly, the Greek text includes the definite article tase in the attributive position. The shield. Tase pisteos. Thus, it literally is the shield of the faith, meaning that the shield which extinguishes Satan's fiery attacks is biblical doctrine. Thus, in order to resist the devil, we must have a rock-solid handle on and resolve for biblical doctrine. Now, we must underscore here that resisting the devil does not mean that our suffering ends. Suffering, as we have seen in Peter, is the pathway to glorification. 
Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8.17, if children heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Therefore we must resist, regardless of whether or not we are suffering. As well, we would do well to remember that prosperity and health are not always signs of God's blessing. Many godly men and women, like Job, suffer the loss of prosperity and health. And friend, the motivation for resisting the devil by standing firm in the faith is by, quote, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. The verb knowing, oida, means to be cognizant of specific information. In other words, Peter was personally aware that his readers, believers in Asia Minor, were not the only believers experiencing suffering. Suffering for Christ is the common experience of believers throughout the world. Therefore, suffering believers, you and me, when we suffer, we can be encouraged to know that our experience is normative. Regardless of whether or not you're scattered, suffering, or slandered, we must observe these five exhortations. We must submit to our elders. See, a lack of respect for biblical authority leads to disunity in the church, which in turn stymies the advancement of the gospel. Believers, we must humble ourselves to one another. Humility promotes respect, cooperation, and unity within the church, which in turn advances the gospel. Believers, we must cast all of our anxieties on God. Because humility surrenders to God and allows Him to be responsible for our problems. Believers, we must be sober and alert. Only minds that are saturated with Scripture and submitted to the Holy Spirit will be prepared to vigilantly watch for the enemy. And finally, we must resist the devil. We need a rock-hard grip upon the shield of biblical doctrine, which will quench Satan's fiery arrows, keep him from destroying us, and ultimately cause him to flee. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for our text today. As we wind down in our study of 1 Peter, we thank you for these five exhortations. We confess, Father, that we don't always perform them as we should, but it is good for us to be reminded of them so that we may examine ourselves and see where we may be lacking. In whatever one of these five areas it may be, whether it's in relation with our elders whether it's in relationship to humility, whether it's in relationship to our anxieties, whether it's in relationship uh, to uh, resisting the devil or being sober and alert in our minds. Father, I pray that your spirit would come within us and point out those areas that need reflection, that need confession, that need forsaking. And that, Father God, we would be obedient in these areas as well as so many others. The judgment is coming. The day when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ draws nearer every day. And Father, when we give an account of our works, whether they're worthless or worthy, I pray as, as we do these areas of exhortation that we would be found worthy. Thank you, Father, for never giving up on us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for caring for us more than we care for ourselves. And knowing that you care for us, we know that you supply us with the grace that is sufficient for all our needs. 
We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.